We were this ramshackle underdog startup that just started there with the love of forums and chat rooms and a belief that more people needed to know more about their money. And we were well-educated enough on the subject and raised as kids to love the stock market so that even though we were English majors, and that was sometimes made light of in early articles about us, these guys are just a couple of English majors talking stocks on AOL, which sounded, on the one hand, kind of exciting and impressive if you're a fan of entrepreneurs and startups, or it sounds really dubious and sketchy if you're working on Wall Street at the time. You're like, I'm sorry, what? Who? And so, but AOL, as its profile rose, so did ours. And we helped raise AOL's profile because we were on the cover of Fortune magazine in the spring of 1996. And so to think back on this, Aaron, one of the most fun memories, uh, nobody can ever take this away from our organization, is that from a standing start as a newsletter for our parents' friends in July of 1993, in less than three years, we were on the cover of Fortune magazine. What does it take for a couple of English majors to go from sharing a small investing newsletter with close friends and family to the cover of Fortune magazine in just three years? We're going to find out on this episode of Webmasters because we have one of those English majors here to talk with us. He is David Gardner and along with his brother, Tom, they founded The Motley Fool, one of the most popular places online to get investment advice for three decades. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that teaches about entrepreneurship by sharing conversations and stories from some of the internet's most impactful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. I also happen to be a former English major. Uh, there aren't many of us who found ourselves building tech startups. So when I do come across them, I love being able to highlight their stories. This episode is especially interesting because not only do our featured English majors excel in the entrepreneurial world, they also excelled in the financial world. And again, those are two places where you don't expect to find people who spent their college careers reading Shakespeare. But, well, maybe we should, and we'll hopefully hear more about why after I tell you more about this podcast's sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you thanks to the help and support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes businesses like the one we're discussing here on this episode, digital content businesses. It also includes everything from SaaS apps to e-commerce stores to Amazon FBAs and even domain portfolios. Basically, if it's an internet-based business and it's making money online, Latonas can help you sell it. Just reach out to their team of experienced brokers and they'll be able to walk you through the process and help you find a perfect buyer. Or maybe you want to be one of those perfect buyers. That's great too, and Latonas can help. Start by heading over to the Latonas website where you'll find listings for all the businesses they're currently helping sell. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. 
I'd like to imagine, even if you're not a regular reader of The Motley Fool, one of their quote-unquote fools, as you'll hear our guest David Gardner describe them, most people are at least familiar with what the company is and does. But in case you aren't, I'm going to start this episode with the answer David told me that he likes to give to people who ask what he does for a living. So I I would say that I'm co-founder of a company uh, that has a purpose of making the world smarter, happier, and richer. So the first thing I do is I talk about what is the thing greater than I that I serve and what is its purpose. And I'd hope at that point they might have heard of The Motley Fool before. Many people have been on our email lists over the years or this kind of thing. Some are actually members, are fools out in the world at large. And one of the great pleasures of now 29 years later, uh, still being co-chairman of the business we started in the 1990s is there are actually a lot of people who do know our company or have have prospered with us. So I get to go into almost any town or city in America, and at least somebody around town would call him or herself a fool. So I'd hope to seek that person out. And Aaron, if you're not that person, I would go on to say that for most of my career, I pick stocks. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. I I was raised to believe what academia does not really, for the most part, believe today. And I continue to believe I'm right about this, that you can beat the stock market averages by being selective and picking companies, not just mailing it in with the index fund. So I'd probably start to regale you if you were interested in why picking stocks is valuable. And that's what I've done for a long time. As you can imagine, David clearly has some incredible insights into financial markets. And if this were a markets-related podcast, I'd definitely be wanting to probe those things more. But it's not a markets-related podcast. It's a podcast about tech entrepreneurship. So the more relevant question for us is to understand how he first got interested in computers and the internet. So I think I should start with my first encounter with a computer, and it was a TRS-80. And these days it's referred lovingly, it's referred to as the trash 80. So I was part of the trash 80 computer era. So the Radio Shack TRS 80, that's where you bought that computer. And it was kind of white blocky graphics. Uh, I remember it because I've always loved computer games right through to this day. And I, I hope to the end of my days, I'm a huge video gamer. Um, I remember that back then the video game came in this form, a cassette tape that you would load into a cassette tape recorder attached to the side of your TRS-80 and you would hit play on the cassette tape recorder and you could play a game like Temple of Apshai, which was an early role-playing game. There were a lot of kind of adventure games, word games. I loved games. And, and in fact, Status Pro Baseball, I remember I'm a huge baseball fan. So I loved computer games and you had to have a computer And these were early, early games, early days, right? Cassette tape. So that was at the age of maybe 13 or 14. I was born in 1966. So right around circa 1980, I'm starting to fall in love with computers. The second thing I fell in love with was online. And uh, before the internet uh, was popular among Americans, there were private online services. And America Online was, ended up being the big dog of the era. But before that, I was using, remember, the Sierra Network, which was owned by Sierra, uh, which was one of the video game companies. They had a private online service. USA Today had one where I talked sports over forums with people. I thought forums were amazing. 
you could actually, I was a writer. I still am a writer. And as a writer, you could actually have people read your stuff and then respond back to it in a discussion board. I was used to just writing stuff, sending it off to editors and getting rejected with form letters 30 days later. So the allure of a medium that was interactive and that was uh, constructive, I could learn from people, sports, games, et cetera. I loved online, but no question America Online started to get head and shoulders above Prodigy and CompuServe, which were the two other competing services of the time. I increasingly favored AOL and I kept my Prodigy membership for a while. We could talk a little bit about that. That's kind of how The Motley Fool started. That'd be great. Yeah, let's hear that story. We started a newsletter for our parents' friends. It was actually for our peers in our minds, but only our parents' friends would pay us $48 a year for our stock picks and, our, and, and the writing that we were doing. They were generously affording us the opportunity to start something. And I pulled the name out of the Penguin Book of Quotations, The Motley Fool. Uh, a fool, a fool. I see a fool in the forest, a motley fool. That was from Act 2, Scene 7 of As You Like It, which is Shakespeare's greatest scene celebrating, capital F, in our parlance, capital F, foolishness. And uh, some great lines. Motley is the only wear. Invest me in my motley. All kinds of puns that made so much sense for what we were going to end up doing. But we started that newsletter in uh, July of 1993. And somewhere in April of 1990, actually it was March of 1994, we thought, you know, as part of a gag, what if we sign online with a fake account and satirize, lampoon what we see others doing especially on Prodigy back in those days, and that is pumping and dumping penny stocks. There seemed to be kind of a racket going on in those early days. These days we call it meme stocks, but back then it was penny stocks that people were pumping. And very clearly, if you got excited by reading somebody else's missive about this uh, company in Central Africa that had a big announcement coming next week and you could get in now at 23 cents a share and it's likely to double as it has the previous 12 that we've all discussed online together, supposedly. Anyway, you should be buying the shares from the person who was hyping it, right? That's the classic penny stock pump and dump. So we didn't like that. That went against all of our instincts as investors and people who love the early days of the internet and the possibilities of very cynical use of it. And so we ended up creating a fake account and making up a penny stock that didn't exist and hyping the heck out of it for humorous purposes, largely over the course of a weekend. And then when market trading started on Monday morning, I think people started realizing it didn't exist because they couldn't reach the Halifax Canadian Exchange, the stock exchange in Canada that we'd made up that Zygletics, our made up company, was trading on. And so everybody realized that we were having fun with them. But as it turns out, and fortunately, this had a happy ending for us, as it turns out, we were really messing with some people and their livelihoods because to my home phone, I received a death threat that Monday or Tuesday uh, after that weekend from somebody who said, if you keep doing that, blah, 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 blah. And so it was evident the wolves of Wall Street were already out there, right? The classic boiler room hyping up stocks and trying to sell them to naive investors was operating already in force um, for profit on Prodigy. And so that early day story in our eighth month of being a print newsletter, but also spending time on this new medium that we're so excited about, 
The joke was I would spend about one day a month printing out the newsletter and putting it together the other 29 days of each month, just enjoying being on the Internet. Although I wasn't calling it that back then, Aaron, because as you'll remember, really the phrase the World Wide Web and the Internet didn't come into common currency until 95 or 96. And this was uh, April of 1994. How did that joke penny stock pump connect to the growth of the Motley Fool? Because connected right to that then was um, that we got written up in the Wall Street Journal for what we'd done. And so I don't really read print media too much anymore, but the classic Wall Street Journal had a second section out of three sections. And in the bottom left corner on the front page of the second section below the fold was a humorous article, probably still is, uh, each day. And one of those days, it told the story of what I just shared with you about how these two fools, these brothers, uh, made this thing up on this new medium online. And it ended up in kind of a dangerous moment there for us. Uh, and so it was sort of, I think it was interesting to people at the time because it was, wow, what is this new medium? What's happening with this thing? And so it also got carried by Forbes. We got written up for what we did. Uh, the Motley Fool, a print newsletter for our parents' friends, got written up in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. And at that point, America Online which was mentioned in those articles because we were talking about how we also loved America online, but we actually didn't see the kind of penny stock boiler room stuff happening on AOL, which appeared to be a higher class kind of a service and clientele than what we were seeing from Prodigy. AOL saw that. And I think I got an email, which those were the early days. Even to get an email was exciting back then. I got an email from AOL saying, hey, read the story. I see you guys are in Northern Virginia. We're also in Northern Virginia. Let's have lunch. And The Motley Fool basically got its big start on AOL, right? So I'm guessing that lunch went well. Is, is that a fair assumption? So sometime early that summer of 1994, I went out to lunch with Rob Shank and Catherine Borsnick, who were two bright early stars working at AOL, and they were in the finance channel. And that was even a new thing for AOL. I don't want to go too deeply back into history, especially because a lot of our listeners might be young enough that they really don't care to know about the early days of AOL. But you know, back then, AOL uh, had keywords. So you type a keyword to get around the service. And they were just starting to organize into channels in sort of the same way that Yahoo in its early days organized by category kind of into channels. These days, Google doesn't do that. I just type in a word and Google takes me wherever I want. But back then, it was very much categorized. Where are you? I'm within sports searching now, or I'm within politics and news. And so they were the finance team, and it was really just them. And there I was saying, yeah, we're, we're a newsletter. Sure. Yeah. No, we've, we've got a few hundred subscribers, which is what we had. And about 50 of those were our close family and friends. And we had started to add maybe 100 or 150 from people who had seen us posting around America Online, most of all, probably a little bit Prodigy too. And we would just answer someone's question on the finance forums and one of those, just say, hey, and happy to send you a free copy of the most recent monthly newsletter of ours, The Motley Fool. I know that my handle on AOL was Motley Fool. So there's Motley Fool answering your question, saying, would you like a free copy of our newsletter? And enough people would take that and then went on to subscribe that I think we probably built up our su subscriber list. We were at about 250 to 300 subscribers then paying us $48 a year. So let's go with 500, you know, times 50-ish, right? So that sounds like, if I'm doing my math right, 
500 times 50 is $25,000 a year. So that wasn't enough for one person's salary even back then. And my brother and I and our friend Eric were all collaborating on it together. So it certainly didn't pay all of our bills, but it was enough at that time that we were kind of a legitimate operation. And I think AOL liked something that they saw in us. And so they invited us on to start Keyword Fool on America Online. Could you maybe explain for the people who don't necessarily understand the impact of AOL, why that would have been such a big deal at the time? So I think we were launched at a precious and unsustainable time. And yet it was of such great benefit to us, Aaron. So this is the important thing to say about the content business that we started as noobs. And that is that at the time that we started, we launched on August 4th, of 1994. And at the time we started, check it, but AOL was probably charging around $3.50 an hour to use online, to use AOL, to use the World Wide Web in a year or two. And so $3.50 an hour just to be online. Imagine having to do that today. Uh, And yet that's how it was early days of the medium, just kind of jumpstart and everything. And I think we can all remember, at least those of us who are old enough, Uh, Younger kids, you've seen this on movies like You've Got Mail, if you ever saw that Tom Hanks vehicle. But, you know, the sound of your computer dialing through your phone line to somebody else's computer, in this case, AOL's, in order to make a connection. (laughs) Horrendous sound I won't replicate here. But you were using your phone line to connect your computer to the big computer in the sky And you were paying $3.50 an hour to do that. And one of the things that we discovered is we were good at getting you to spend time. I'm not going to say waste. I hope not. I hope it was fun to spend time online. So at Keyword Fool, we early on distinguished ourselves, I think, against a lot of AOL's existing corporate partners because they had big players like, I don't know, let's go with NBC, And yet we were competing more successfully for more AOL hours and eyeballs than a lot of these much bigger established companies because we really love the medium. We love the interactivity. We started hiring people just to hang out in chat rooms and chat with you. We didn't have money to hire them, but AOL had free accounts that we were allowed to offer people. Now, if you are an inveterate user of online and and you're given a free account, just to be there Thursday nights at 7 p.m. in the Motley Fool chat room talking restaurant stocks, that's a pretty great deal. So all of a sudden, Tom, I, and our Motley group, and we only had a few employees back then, we realized, let's give away dozens of these accounts. This is amazing. And so we built out, based on a world in which people were paying $3.50 an hour to be online, we built out a large infrastructure that presented in a wholesome and satisfying way. Like if If you showed up at our chat room, we had that person there at 7 p.m. talking restaurant stocks. So we were dependable. We were building trust. And we were all doing it as just a couple of guys on their computers. And it was making everyone lots of money, too, I imagine. As in AOL must have loved your ability to keep people online when they were charging by the hour. That's like the whole first chapter in a lot of ways of our company, including the business model that we were about to have to shift, et cetera. But that per hour getting paid, just to put the numbers out there, Aaron, uh, if somebody paid AOL $3.50 and they came over to keyword fool, we got 7% of that initially. 
So 7% of $3.50 is somewhere around 30 cents an hour. And we negotiated that up to 10%. Ted Leonsis is like, you guys are crushing it. Sure, you guys now get 10% of every hour spent. So that $3.50, we're getting 35 cents. So our goal is to rack up as many hours as possible at Keyword Fool. And we were good at that. But when all of a sudden AOL shifted to flat fee, all of that went away. And so within a rapid escalation in the next three years or so, AOL would start dropping its price and then eventually go to a flat fee model where you paid about $25 a month to use AOL unlimited internet unlimited use. And so all of a sudden, our company, which I think was sort of the the star in AOL's night sky in terms of this scrappy online startup that proved this whole model and proved AOL as its purveyor would work. All of a sudden, we were almost persona non grata around AOL headquarters because we were causing large numbers of people to spend hours and hours using AOL. Their keyword fool And every minute anybody used AOL back then was a cost to AOL. They had to pay back connect fees to AT&T and all the rest. So they still are paying per minute costs or per hour costs, but they've gone flat fee for everybody all month long. And so the Motley Fool was causing large numbers of people to rack up costs for AOL and only paying back 25 bucks a month all of a sudden. And so the whole model shifted and Ted Leonsis who is one of the champions of the early internet and was a champion of our company, all of a sudden said, a couple of things have to happen here, guys. First of all, go, go out to the web. You know, Go to the web if you think you can make money out there. Nobody knows how to make money out on the web and we'll, we'll back you out there. So you can, if you want, you could leave AOL. Not only that, you're going to need to leave AOL unless we're allowed to buy a part ownership of your company because we're putting you guys out front and we're not getting anything enough back right now. So we want to own some of your company. And if this were one of those podcasts that ends with a cliffhanger, we could just leave it right there. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, But this isn't one of those podcasts that ends with a cliffhanger. So, yeah, what happened? What was the impact of AOL pushing y'all out? What came in, which was a blessing and a curse to us, what came in was many more people now using the medium for many more hours. and generally kind of for free, which meant we had to shift our business model, major inflection point, young entrepreneur, had to shift to a free model with ads, marketing. Get the eyeballs in place and get the ads out in front of them. And uh, that was sort of chapter two of our company. We can go there now or go a different direction. But the early days of online were ending in the sense that the whole business model shifted from a per hour to a flat fee and the economic implications of that and the ecosystems that were built around that profoundly shifted. It was seismic. You can keep going. This is great. Uh, Let's hear about chapter two. Sure. So um, thank you. I mean, I I know a lot of your work is, is talking to people in and around those early days. And I know a second portion of your work is just helping entrepreneurs or young people think about how to start something, what that means. So one part of it is rooted in history. And then another part of it is just timeless. And it's just, you know, what can you learn from people who started things that worked? I will start to get rid of the history now. 
and fast forward and really go where you want. But I will just start chapter two by saying that all of a sudden at The Motley Fool, we had our best-selling books out. We had a coast-to-coast radio show that shifted to NPR. We had um, 435 employees. And at the time, we had venture capital coming in. We raised over $50 million in multiple rounds with really fine venture capitalists. I would say some of the best people in the industry. We had all of that going. And the stock market got crushed, 2001. And you know, once every 10 years, that's probably going to happen. In fact, about 10 years after that, 2008-9 was another horrible time for the stock market. And the year in which you and I are talking has been a horrible year for the stock market. So in our 29-year history, I've seen things, the tide really recede badly, like everybody's cut in half, like you have half of what you had nine months ago. That's happened three times. And by the way, it's going to happen again and again after that. And if we all live as long as I hope we all can, we're going to see a bunch more times. And that's always been our attitude, playing the only game that counts, the long game as investors. And that's why I'm happy to say you're talking to somebody who's still going 29 years after that AOL startup. Our company's bigger than ever before and better than ever before and more valuable than ever before. And we're always playing the long game. My younger brother, Tom, is our CEO. And we're really proud of what we've done. But to go back then to that chapter two, I just want to say that it was absolutely brutal what occurred. Because from a business model standpoint, we had raised a lot of venture capital. We had big advertisers spending you know, seven-figure contracts to advertise with us. And all of a sudden, stocks start dropping in 2001. And we started looking at our numbers going, wow, you know what? We actually, we've always been very conservative financially. Like we have great finance people at The Fool. We have a lot of very successful, smart people who've been with us still in some cases or have rotated away from us over the years, but we're very fiscally conservative. So our CFO at the time, Scott Shedler, was looking at what we were doing, saying, you know what, guys, I actually think we're going to have to let some people go because we just lost an advertiser and the market's dropping some. And Tom and I were really sad to hear that because we'd hired so many wonderful people. We'd hired some family members, friends of ours, people who'd move their family to come with us in Northern Virginia across the country. And we had 435 employees. We started with two. And so that was really disappointing. And uh, as another advertiser canceled, we realized, yeah, we're going to have to lay off 100 people. And so we did in, um, in the spring of 2001. And we thought, well, that was horrible. We're never going to have to do that again. And about two or three months later, we realized, oh my gosh, OMG, we're going to have to do that again. And why had things gotten so bad or rather so much worse than you'd anticipated? At that point, the market is really in the doldrums. And what's simply happening is our advertisers are canceling. We're like, wait, we thought you guys were in you know, for as much as you had last quarter. And often these are big brokerage companies, Ameritrade, TD Ameritrade these days, right? The big brokerage companies have always loved us because we mint new investors. We get people excited, I think rightly so, about making a commitment to their whole life to investing and being a stock market investor. So they open up accounts and all of a sudden that you know, Ameritrade is like, guys, sorry, no, we're not, we're not in for anything this quarter. And so it was devastating. We had been built up in lots of wonderful ways, having a free model, uh, being able to offer everything we do for free, all of our winning stock picks. I picked Amazon in 1997, an investment I still have in place 
Uh, and it was an amazing free article on our site saying, hey, we recommend you buy Amazon. We hope that you would click the ad next to that article. That's how we were getting paid back then. And it worked well enough that we were growing go-go years and we had the venture capital to lose money for a while as we kept growing. But when the music stopped in 2001 and for a third time, we laid off 100 more employees, everything came tumbling down. Amazon went from 95 to seven. Uh, The World Trade Center came tumbling down. Not far from Full HQ in Washington, D.C., something else hit the Pentagon. The stock market closed. People weren't opening up their 401k statements. It was horrible. And we, we thought that we might now just five years after we'd been on the cover of Fortune magazine, we might fail. <laughs> this is this is great. I, I love the narrative arc you're building. It's, it's very epic. Clearly, you're someone with a literary background. So uh, now we're at the moment of major tension. And of course, you obviously didn't fail since The Motley Fool is still around today. So what happened? How'd you come out of the financial crash death spiral? I love a good Rocky running up the steps story, Aaron. We can do some of that if, if you'd like. But um, the, the great news is that we were resilient. So there, there's another power that we should talk briefly about. That's the power of playing the long game, the power of resilience. And anybody who's an entrepreneur of any vintage has been through a lot to get there. And those who are aspiring right now, who are hearing us, it's going to work for you if you're willing to own it and go all out and all in. And I think that's the only way that big things really ever start. And we sure didn't know that we were starting something when we started The Motley Fool. I mean, it really was a newsletter. It was a lark. I had just quit my job writing for Louis Rukeyser, who had a long-running television show called Wall Street Week on PBS. And I was writing for his newsletter. And I found that, and not, not his fault, I found that an entirely unsatisfying job. And so six months in, I just quit it. But I'd been working for a financial newsletter, so maybe it made sense to start one, uh, which we did. But we didn't know we were starting a company. We didn't know what internet was when we first uh, published the first issue of The Motley Fool. And so, you know, a lot of it is some combination of resilience, as I was highlighting, but then also improvisation. Anyway, to get back to your question, the third decade of our company, which is right around 2013-14, we really started to have the resources to be able to advertise by SEO keywords, reach people online in a way we hadn't before. Uh, The hero's journey of us somehow managing to pay off all of our VCs, which cost us nine figures to do, that remarkable story, which we've really never told, and we haven't written the Motley Fool book yet, and that'll be prominent if we ever do that, but that effort ended in 2014. April Fool's Day, 2014, we in full made the final payment, paying off all of our early investors. And at that point, we were 100% autonomous. And for the first time in 10 years, the cash flow that we had didn't all go out the door to pay off somebody else. So you can then unleash the Motley Fool Decade 3. And now we have money that we can actually spend to build our brand and to reach more people. And we had some brilliant management at the time, starting with my brother, Tom, our CEO, who has been now for more than 15 years, the CEO of our company, but Jeremy Phillips, Mark Brooks, some others at our company in those teens who understood the power of distribution. That's the word I use, distribution. We were able to reach 
um, tens of millions of people. And today, at the end of each month, you and I are speaking on June 30th, whenever this podcast actually comes out. I don't know if the market's changed, but we were speaking on June 30th. And today, we had over 100 million people visit our website this month. So that is much, much bigger than we ever thought. And that is a responsibility. I mean, yeah, it seems like a huge responsibility, especially considering your market and the kind of information you're providing, which is investment advice. How do you think about that responsibility to not abuse your power and help protect your audience? I think that we're doing good with it. We're at least trying to do good. The purpose of The Motley Fool, as I mentioned earlier, is to make the world smarter happier and richer. And if you were to quiz any one of our roughly 625 employees, what's the purpose of the company? I think every one of them would be able to say that back to you. That wasn't always the case. 10 years ago, you would have gotten 83 different answers. So the alignment around purpose and a recognition that we we are in a, a place of responsibility. And frankly, we've been in that place for 30 years now, Aaron, because even when we were in our 20s, we knew that we were picking a stock and other people were buying it the next day when we published that. And that was our parents' friends. And we didn't want to mess up their retirement. So from the earliest days, we felt responsibility around what we were publishing and, and continue to do so. And it hurts, by the way, in a year like the one we've just lived through, when all of the advice you're giving that people are paying you for isn't working, at least in the near term, and everything seems to be going down. But again, because I've seen that happen before a number of times, part of our culture at The Fool is a recognition that it's about mindset and about speaking to the pain in times like this, just like it is about celebrating um, multi-baggers for some of our amazing stock picks we've made over the years. But I think that I just want to underline your emphasis on your course and the importance of distribution, my word, uh, to reach a lot of people. That's such a powerful thing to achieve if you can. It took us three decades to do that, not three years, not just one venture capital round. We were playing the long game and we still think we're young in our mid fifties and we've got a lot ahead of us. We have a much bigger future than our past uh, by the math of it. So I think that you have to feel like you're doing good in this world. You have to be responsible. And we don't have any question about, you know, would we ever open up a penny stock service or something that gave people bad advice? Cause we're reaching a lot of people could make a lot of money. Um, we're conscious capitalists. That's a phrase I'm using for the first time in this conversation, but I'm on the national board, have been for years now. And I think that conscious capitalism is uh, and a re- really important topic for young, younger people and older people to hear about. You know, businesses that elevate humanity, that do well by doing good. And I, I, I every day come across such businesses, and I think that they deserve to be celebrated and their stories should be told. And increasingly, they are today. You know, great companies like Patagonia, that stand for something bigger than just profit. But ironically, often those businesses, Aaron and everybody listening to me, ironically, those businesses often have the greatest profit shares in their industry because they're serving something bigger. They're serving purpose over profit, but the irony is they get most of the profit. So these kinds of companies, that's what the Molly Fool is trying to be. And those are the stocks that we're trying to pick for the most part. And a lot of it is some combination of distribution And with great power comes great responsibility. Let's wrap up then by talking about that responsibility. We've mentioned a few times so far about you and your brother being English majors. And of course, uh, I was an English major too. And we kind of get laughed off as not having, quote unquote, 
real degrees. But in my mind, at least, that's a dangerous approach to take because the people who can tell good narratives can have an outsized impact on the world. At least, I think they can. Do you feel the same way? And if so, would you mind speaking to the, for lack of a better phrase, the value of an English major and other similar types of humanities majors? Well, I've thought a lot about this over the years. And first of all, uh, brothers from another mother. I mean, Aaron, love it. Thank you. My brother, Tom, also an English major who went to Brown University. You know that I went to North Carolina. I know that you went to Duke. We won't even go there for this podcast, but... I want you to know that I, I do think more broadly, the humanities of which, of course, literature, study of literature is included. But the humanities, I think, create generalists. And, you know, I know some very bright people have written some great books about the power of being a generalist in a very specialized world. And I truly think a lot of the leaders in our society today, we over index as humanities people. Because even from the earliest days as school kids, there we are being asked to study algebra, but also try to play an instrument and also not embarrass ourselves on the athletic fields. And by the way, pottery's up next. And so we're constantly threading together vastly disparate experiences and trying out and seeing if we have any skill or talent in these things. And some of us, not me, some of us did in some of these things. But the great news is you are making connections across a wide variety of different disciplines or experiences. And so at least for me, I think that's been a real asset. And that helps me be a leader or the leader that I am today. And you be the leader that you are today, Aaron. And you and me be guys who can run podcasts and have interesting conversations. In this case, not about English literature or rarely so, but specifically, I, I really actually believe with anybody. But what you have found and what I have found, so again, here we are, birds of a feather, we've found that business and entrepreneurship is a fascinating topic of enduring interest to many more people than probably Shakespeare would be today as universal and beloved as Shakespeare rightly is. The private sector is the largest employer worldwide, not the public sector. And there are a ton of people who'd love to start a business, or even if they don't, they're going to work in a business. And so I think you and I found our way to topics where it was a bigger thing than what we studied, but we got the skills and the background from our academic days. And you went far longer than I did, PhD. Wow. Um, we got the skills to enable us to have these conversations. And ultimately, I think, especially, and this is not to talk down our engineering friends or the specialists in this world, because this is true of a lot of them too, but I want to highlight intellectual curiosity as such an important attribute that is often shared by many people who study philosophy or, I mean, all of the subjects under the great umbrella of the humanities that, you know, we carry forward the torch from the ancient Greeks from, you know, I, I remember reading, I, I, I just loved, I loved Homer. I loved the Odyssey when I was 10 years old. And, and that same kid is still here today with his belief that those stories matter and that they enable us to improve our stories and share those of others. So I don't know, that's kind of a shaggy dog response, but you know, to the humanities, my friend, and you deserve a raise by the way. And I hope the brass there is listening. Well, uh, me too, but I'm sure they aren't. Uh, but aside from that, I mean, can we zero in on some of what you just said a bit more? It's certainly great to hear that humanists are generalists and can learn lots of things. 
But in my experience, humanists are also content creators, and creating content has power, right? And, and influence. Even to borrow your references in the beginning on things like markets, where the skills can be used to manipulate penny stocks. Beyond those funny penny stock examples that got you started, how have you seen other funny or interesting instances where content and content creation play a role in the markets? Well, I think that um, this isn't funny, but it, it was very instructive for me and has always influenced me ever since. It involves Steve Case, who is the founder of AOL. So Steve Case is just, I think he's a brilliant person. I think he's a great American. I think anybody who worked at AOL during the golden days and then his generosity since then, I think should be grateful for his and his wife, Jean's work in this world. Um, and more recently, they've been you know, doing whistle stop tours across middle America, trying to get entrepreneurship going uh, in the same way that we often associate with the two coasts on either side of it. And so, you know, uh, looking at the middle and trying to raise it up is a big part of what he does today. Anyway, back in the day, um, I was at an AOL partner conference. Uh, so, you know, content partners of AOL all assembled for a two-day offsite uh, at, a, at a big resort somewhere. And uh, AOL was about to raise its rates. Like maybe it was $3 an hour and it was going to go $3.50 an hour, something like that. And, you know, Aaron, for the sake of historicity and accuracy, it might even be the opposite. It might even be that AOL was about to drop its rates. The main point here is AOL was about to make a fundamental shift in its pricing for its customers. And the articles that week were talking about what a bad decision that was, how crazy that was. That wasn't going to work. And frankly, AOL was not often portrayed very positively in the press. In a lot of reasons, I think for a lot, the main reason in my mind is because it was competing with a lot of those newspapers and other media businesses. And Ted Leonsis and his leadership and visionary leadership, Steve Case, uh, Bob Pittman, others who came along, I think they were the smartest guys in the room back then. And so they didn't get a lot of positive coverage often from the New York Times or uh, the print media, especially. And so I was noticing that. And I, and I was there with Steve uh, with probably a drink in our hands at the partner conference that night. And I was like, hey, Steve, I, I see you've seen what there is. The, the rate change, according to them, doesn't look like this is a great move. And without being cocky, but with cocksure self-confidence, he looked me in the eye and he basically said, don't you think we've already tested this for the last six months? Don't you think we already know exactly what's going to happen with the numbers here? And he didn't have to give long answers like I've given you on your podcast this time around. He was very terse. And what I took away from that was, first of all, he ended up being right. It was totally a great move. AOL was in a monster stock. It was one of my stock picks back in the day. It made at its height. It made people following our advice 150 times their money. It was a monster company. As it turns out, 1990s was the decade America did come online. And when you own these kinds of iconic companies, uh, even if they look overpriced, my experience as a rule breaker is you should be buying them. And so I've learned to do that. And I was doing that with AOL at the time. But what I learned is I really, and, and it's been corroborated any number of times since, the people who are there working at the businesses themselves, whether it's the CEOs, the VPs, the numbers people, they really do know their stuff, especially if it's at a high level, a bigger company, much better than the fourth estate and its treatment of what it thinks 
is going to be happening at these companies. And so I learned that day a much greater confidence, not just in Steve Case and AOL, but in my belief, business as more authoritative than the business press. And I realize that's going to sound like heresy to some people who work in journalism or some, maybe some people in UNC journalism school, my own school. Uh, and I've spoken to journalism schools before and still said this. There's not an article that's ever been written about The Motley Fool that didn't have at least one thing that was just wrong in it. And, I, you know, I, and as a young man, I was seeing this. Like, this is amazing. They got your age wrong, Tom, or they flipped our names or it, it can be harmless stuff. But what I learned is there's so much human error in the press. And I hadn't grown up thinking that, but knowing that changed how I thought about being an investor and what I would read or believe in or not and who I would trust or listen to. And I think I've been really well rewarded for those wise words from Steve Case back in the day. Again, it's not a funny, crazy story, but it's one that I still think about today. It reverberates. Well, it's certainly a story worth remembering because it's a great reminder about how the truth never fully aligns with the stories we get from our media sources, even this podcast. I don't mean the people reporting those stories are intentionally malicious. I just mean that when someone like me is retelling a story to all of you, it's going to have holes and flaws in misinformation. It has to. Even in a case like this podcast episode about The Motley Fool, David just covered 30 years in, what, 30-ish minutes? Surely we didn't hear about everything that's important. With that said... I hope you learned something important and valuable to you. I know I did, and I'd like to thank David Gardner for taking the time to share his story and the story of The Motley Fool with all of us. If you want to see more of what he's working on these days, you can, of course, find him at fool.com. And David is also on Twitter. He's at David G. Fool. Webmasters is on Twitter, too. We're at Webmasters Pod. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. And because I was also an English major and love creating stuff, you can find lots of other content I create about startups and entrepreneurship, definitely not investing advice, over on my website, it's aaronedinnan.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. Thank you to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. Remember, if you're in the market to buy or sell an internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. And if you're in the market for some other great podcasts about entrepreneurship, why not check out our back catalog? We got lots of episodes with other incredible founders and entrepreneurs. Find them all on your podcasting app of choice. And while you're there, please remember to subscribe so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. We'll have that out for you very soon. But until then, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs>